Elizabeth Warren, you know, she seems so on top of it that like you think that if you would make a joke about her, she would not be angry, but she would say, can you just, would you just please explain to me why it is you think that's funny? I'm willing to listen. <laughs> just, just tell me like very kindly. She'd be like, do you, and are you proud of herself? For that joke? <laughs> Now, I'm not a jealous person by nature, but today's guest has got me so in my feelings. I'm not jealous because he has his own nightly talk show on network television. I'm not jealous because he spent 14 years as a writer and performer on the iconic comedy sketch show Saturday Night Live. I'm not jealous because he has a stand-up special on Netflix called Lobby Baby. I'm jealous because... He got drunk with Rihanna. And I don't mean just a little tipsy. I mean absolutely shit face. One day, one day, that will be my testimony. But for now, I'm going to have to settle for hearing the first-hand account from Seth Meyers, host of his own late-night talk show on NBC. We're also going to rank the best SNL skits of all time, discuss what it was like being publicly called out by Donald Trump. Welcome to the club, Seth. And how he got into comedy. Seth Meyers, up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So I couldn't pick a worse week to have a great guest like you, Seth Myers, because uh, Michigan State plays Northwestern. That's right. This weekend. That's right. You all have beaten us three years in a row. That's right. Um, and if you win again, um, I think it will tie the most consecutive victories that you have ever had against Michigan State. Maybe, again, not knowing maybe the most consecutive victories Northwestern's had against anyone. See, I, Four in a row is hard for Northwestern. I, vent- I was thinking that that might be the case, but I didn't want to add to that trivia. I didn't want to like already make it more painful for me yes. than it already is. And you're coming off a painful loss as it is. We uh, are, yes. So this could be two in a row for you guys. It could be where our offense scored a whopping seven points against the mighty Arizona State <laughs> yes. uh, team. And so, and I think we've talked about this. The, yeah. My mom went to grad school at Michigan State and I used yes. to live in, in uh, Okemos, yeah, in Okemos right. Michigan. So yeah. there was a time, I believe the first college football game I ever went to was Michigan State. So I, I have love for Michigan State except on a Northwestern weekend. And yet you wound up at North Western. I did. I, I did wind up at Northwestern. I'm, I'm heartbroken by this. Well, <laughs> I'm sure you are. It worked out well for me. It, it, it kind of did, did, but all right. Yeah. I guess, it worked I guess, out well for both of us. I guess you're right. Yeah. Um, and because I don't look forward to another thing, too, is like, obviously, for people who don't know, Northwestern is a huge journalism school. Yes. And 
we are constantly fighting against the Northwestern Mafia, um, yeah. Michigan State. We're fighting for journalistic supremacy in case the world is interested in this. Yeah. Um, and so uh, all the Northwestern grads, uh, many of which I worked with at ESPN, all my Northwestern journalism friends, period, they have been lighting my ass up for like literally three years because of this. Oh, so yeah. I really am eager to shut up the Mike Greenbergs and the Rachel Nichols of the world like Michael Wilbon, like, stop talking shit about my school, man. So, well, I, there's I, a lot on the line for me this weekend. I hope that you can come to terms with it now <laughs> so that it's easier for you. I don't have, I should say, uh, I'm always uh, cautiously optimistic with Northwestern. I don't have a, a lot of reason to think this will go well for us, but it's in really? East Lansing or is it in um, uh, I don't remember where it is uh, okay. this year, but um, uh, I don't know why you would think that because Northwestern, regardless of record, always gives us yeah. a lot of trouble. New quarterback. Yeah. You know, this will be his third game, so yep. we'll see how it goes. All right. All well, right. I... Um, I will not be optimistic because, especially yes. given last week. So I'll, you can carry all the optimistic. So uh, another reason I'm glad you're going to help me with my white demographic. You're the second white person to be on this show. Oh, really? Who was yeah. the first white person? Uh, it was Beto O'Rourke. Oh, wow. All yes. right. So I he, mean, you might you have a type because we, we have the same face. <laughs> Beto I, and I have a very like narrow, similar face. I didn't think about this. Yeah. This is what it is. I I'm, think if I was on SNL right now, I would be a gimme to play Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> yeah. You think you could do a, a good Beto? I think, yeah. I think I could do that sort of, he strikes me as, you know, he has that post-punk energy mm. that I think I could I could channel. Oh. And I bet probably age-wise, he's probably closest to me of any of the candidates yeah, as well. Yeah, I didn't, you know, until you said it, yeah. I didn't see it. And now I'm not going to be able to unsee it. So <laughs> yeah, thank you for playing well, this Well, I think our mind. voices are different enough that at least for the listeners, they will be able to separate <laughs> They will know you're not Beto O'Rourke. Yeah. Um, I felt like I should have brought some Don Julio 1942 in here because uh, your day drinking bit is probably... Yeah. I think it's one of the funniest things on television. It's a blast to do. Right. I mean, we're just, it's just genuinely drinking with somebody that you want to drink with. <laughs> but, it, you know, the reality is you can't do it more than twice a year. I'm a 45-year-old man. The recovery from those is not quick. Twice a year? You really lost your fastball, huh? I have no fastball. <laughs> well, the other thing is I got two kids. I got a wife. And every day drinking segment, the last one I did with Rihanna, you know, I came home at four in the afternoon after having, you know, uh, probably 12 drinks in two hours, immediately knocked over a lamp and my wife is just rolling her eyes at me. And then I'm a surly day drunk who's saying, this is for work. <laughs> uh, so there's not a lot of sympathy. Well, uh, that particular big uh, 10 million views as of the taping of this podcast, <laughs> Man, <we made> it. <laughs> um, I, which you might imagine you could probably have Rihanna reading the phone book and it probably would get yes, at least let's be honest. two or three yeah, million. Yeah, yeah. But the fact that you had her drinking only added to it. So um, you said you had 12 drinks in two hours. So like how drunk were you? By the end, I was really drunk. I should point out that I, you know, Rihanna was probably around six drinks. She was right there with me. Mm. I do think one of the differences, in, and maybe this is both uh, the differences in our age, I'm obviously uh, older than Rihanna, are our cool factor. There's a difference there. Just I don't a slight point one. out. I'm pretty sure Rihanna was not done for the night. I'm <laughs> pretty sure I went home and went to sleep, and I got the feeling that Rihanna, this was the beginning. Okay. Yeah. Um, that had been the salad course. Did yeah. and Was there a point in this episode where you, it registered, yep, I'm drunk. 
At what point was it? Yeah, it was, you know, pretty early on because, you know, the reality is you have somebody for two hours and, you know, whose time is very valuable. And we've also figured out that day drinking's you know, works best when I'm drunk. So I really have a lot of shots of tequila early on to try to loosen up. The other thing is just as a performer in general, I'm I have a tendency to be in my head. I think it's coming from a writing background. I'm trying to structure what I think is going to work in the edit and what's not. And so the sooner I can like kill that part of me with alcohol, the more fun we have and it just becomes looser. And so, uh, yeah, I went at it pretty hard. And the other thing is, uh, you know, I, I don't have to tell you this, but, you know, Rihanna is, uh, she's a, um, inebriating in her own right just being around rihanna gets you a little drunk you know <laughs> right well, you know because i just hope to kinda, one day have that experience yeah yes. you kind of can't believe it right that i'm not only are you sitting there talking to rihanna it's like you're drinking with Rihanna. you're drinking with rihanna and she is genuinely uh and i say this with no exaggeration she's an incredibly warm person you just don't feel like you know i think there are some people that you could day drink with and just in the way there are some people you interview and you feel as though there's this wall up or, you know, they maybe don't want to be there. And and from the beginning, there was this sense of, oh, she is very game for this and we're going to have a, she bought a fun in, time. She which always in. makes a, a segment yeah, yes. that much better. Um, you mentioned your, your writing background. And as a lot of people know, prior to you hosting Late Night, you were on uh, SNL 12 years? 12 and a half, yeah. 12 and a half. Do you still, didn't you have the record for longest I was, yeah. Tenure? I was, uh, I was uh, passed, uh, deservedly so, by Keenan Thompson. Okay, so I, I held it very briefly, but happy that the belt belongs right. well, to Well, your jersey's the in the rafters, yes, so yes. no need to worry about it. Um, but when you're on a show like SNL that has become this, this tradition, this staple in American culture, what's that writing room like when you're pitching and trying to get something on i you know i think it's weird to work anywhere where and again you know the same guy wrote the book you worked at espn where there's a book i worked at snl where there's a book where you yep. can actually read By james a book. miller yep. yeah before you get there and you sort of have already seen in culture the way the show has been depicted and ultimately though at the end of the day i think it's the same as any writer's room certainly any comedies uh writer's room where you have to pitch things that make people laugh. And I was there at a time where the show was incredibly supportive and it was a good group of people. We were all really close. And so even on a bad day, you know, where you were pitching not your funniest stuff, there was, a, you could sense a camaraderie and, and a, a certain amount of love. But uh, anywhere where you're writing comedy and, and pitching things, there's going to be a high level of stress to it. Well, you were, it was good for you because the uh, SNL book was out before you got to SNL, right? Yeah, but I didn't read it for three years. Mm. And it was a huge mistake because I thought reading it would put me in my head. And then when I finally got around to it, I realized, oh, I should have read this from the beginning because it actually was very helpful that all my heroes and people that I assumed had just figured out the show from their first day there had the same anxieties about it that I did. Because, yeah, it was the ESPN book while you were there, right? Yeah, because yeah. I was in the book. You were in the book, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so I didn't get a chance. I think I even said that to, to Jim Miller. I said, I wish this book would have came out before sure. I got here. It would have really been helpful in terms of navigating uh, a place like ESPN. So, um, so take me back a little bit. Tell me your... Your comedy origin story. How did you know you wanted to do this? You know, I my uh, new student week at Northwestern, and I was there as a radio TV film major, but I saw the improv troupe. I'd never seen anything quite like that. I immediately wanted to do it. And it became sort of while I was, you know, I was uh, studying and, and doing a lot of writing in college. But that was, for me, 
the brass ring that I was trying to get. And I auditioned for it every year and only got in my senior year. But in those uh, years, I was going down to Chicago. I was taking improv classes. I was trying to hone it as a skill. But doing that at Northwestern, where they're obviously a great uh, base of performers, a very high quality of funny people, and sort of be in the world with them felt as though there was maybe a level of quality that would you know, continue after college. And, and then I was just in Chicago doing improv stuff, waiting tables. I got really lucky that there was this theater in Amsterdam that some Chicago guys started and I did uh, improv comedy in Amsterdam for a couple of years. And that was a great What was thing. that like? I, I mean, living in Amsterdam alone was the best two years of my life. And a lot of good things have happened for me oh, since. Oh, I've a lot of guys say that. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, and I should say, you know, I think there's this idea of, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I think when you hear Amsterdam, the cliche is sort of, you know, uh, uh, prostitutes and weed. That was not what uh, was the, I mean, Heineken on tap alone, that was enough to get me through. But it's just the most beautiful place in the world. I got to live there. I got to be with a bunch of Chicago improvisers. We were working, you know, you're on stage 200, 250 nights a year, which is were reps that you were not getting in Chicago at our age because we were on the younger side of, of who was doing improv. And it was just transformative. And I met a girl there who's still a dear friend of mine named Joe Benjamin. And we started, we went back to Chicago and started doing a two-person improv show. And that's what SNL saw. So those years in Amsterdam and the people I met were, uh, you know, I was over there with people like Ike Barinholtz. I was over there with Jordan Peele. Uh, we were there at the same time. Um, so it was a good group of people and it was a fun place to be. Obviously. So what did your parents think about the fact that you wanted to pursue this? I'm sure when they sent you away to Northwestern, they were thinking, yeah, he's going to get into improv. <laughs> well, they were more supportive than they maybe even should have been, but it was helpful. My dad and uh, mom met at Northwestern, so they've gone there as well. Uh, my dad uh, was an engineering major, but my mom was a theater major. And so she had the performing gene. And then my dad is a really funny guy. So he had the comedy gene. And so I think that when both my brother and I went into comedy, it actually, to them, looked like a thing that made sense based on who they were. And I don't think they would have been as supportive if they didn't think we were funny, but they did. And, you know, growing up, it was just the four of us and we laughed all the time. So I think that they thought, and also they had seen my other grades, so they weren't thinking I was going to be a mathematician. <laughs> of the things that they had seen from me, they probably thought, well, comedy might be the best choice. Yeah. Um, and with you and your brother both um, doing comedy and, and acting, um, I can only imagine what those arguments must have been like. We were pretty good. You know, right. I'm going uh, while we were roasting each other. No, we were good. Uh. We had the same friends, you know, and then he, I, sorry, I, I keep bringing it up Northwestern, but he went there as well. And we were, uh, so we were incredibly close all the way through college. He so was I, in I can Amsterdam. guess where your kids are probably going to go. Well, <laughs> good, good guy. if they have the grades, they're three and one. They don't seem like, yeah. They, <laughs> I did Not the, showing the best side. I did give the commencement of Northwestern a couple of years ago just to remind them, like, I'm doing you a favor. Uh, so if I ever need one down the line, but, um, we were never at each other's throats. Yeah. We were always, uh, doing things together. Uh, so, um, you, of course, you know, you spent all the, the time at SNL and then you make the turn into being a, a late night host. Was this something that you always had in mind to do? No, I mean, it, SNL was already beyond my wildest dreams. And then when I got to SNL, it was always in my mind that the best fit for me would be at the update desk. And that was m less the things I was good at and more the things that I was bad at. I realized, oh, I do not have the range or the skill set of the people in the cast. Certainly at the time, the guys in the cast that I would be 
you know, fighting for roles, when you're up against people like Bill Hader and Andy Samberg and Will Forte and Fred Armisen, you realize, oh, I'm not going to get a lot of these parts, Jason Sudeikis. But, you know, behind the desk, I think that would be a good place for me. So when I had Update, all of a sudden I started thinking, oh, this is the dream. I could be here forever. And I wasn't really thinking what the next thing would be. And, and it was really, obviously, fortuitous for me that it came. When it happened, it happened a little bit earlier than I think anybody thought that, you know, Jay Leno had to obviously decide to walk away. And then Jimmy made perfect sense to elevate to that role. And, and so the fact that Late Night came open at a time where I was, you know, in the building and, and doing something similar. I think when NBC executives were wondering who could sit behind a desk, it was lucky that I had the other job in the building that was sitting behind the desk. Yeah, sometimes timing is everything, right? Yeah, I mean, I, you look, I was doing a two-person show in Chicago in 2000. And somebody who worked for the SNL talent department had family there and was randomly in town and thought, oh, there's an improv festival. I'll go check it out. And if that woman, Ayala Cohen, hadn't gone to that show that night, none of this, maybe none of this would have ever happen. So I think it's, you know, timing, luck are uh, really nice compliments to hard work and talent. So like me, you are also on Donald Trump's Christmas card list. Yeah, we're both on the list. <laughs> yeah, we're both on the list. Um, You've been name checked how many times in tweets? <laughs> And well, I've only I've only received one. Okay, right? only one name check. Got it. Yeah, I only have one name check and uh, a press conference conference briefing when uh, Sarah Sanders said I should be fired. Yeah. Um. So one press conference, one name check. That's pretty good. Yeah, I feel like I'm doing all right. You, yeah. on the other hand, um, yeah. you know, he really, really, really does love you. Um. Yeah. And, and he so much so that after you were at the correspondence dinner, uh, he wrote this. About you, um, a third-rate comedian named Seth Meyers, somebody who, in my opinion, had absolutely no talent, got up and spoke. He was nervous, shaking, and sounded like he had marbles in his mouth. He made a crack that Donald Trump's candidacy was a joke or something to that effect. Um, at this point, the president has talked about you so much. Um, I don't think you care necessarily, right? right? But, like, I mean, what's generally your reaction that— in the history books, it will be that Donald Trump had this to say about Seth Meyers or that a sitting president yeah. has this much of an issue with well, you. Everything right now is so surreal and it feels like the history book, it's very hard to know how it's going to be written or what the framework of it's going to be. I will tell you that the fact that that correspondence dinner night now has been completely reframed from what it was the evening I walked off that stage and thought, oh, that went great. Uh, as well as I could have hoped, I will always remember this night as a night, not just that I made fun of Donald Trump, but that everybody that I had made fun of, it just felt good. And I put a lot of time into it. I had a lot of great people helping me out. And I always just thought my memory of it would be a night that it crushed. And now, of course, the memory of it has completely changed. But how do you how do you look at it now? Well, I still feel the same way. I don't have right. any regrets about it because I went out and did the job I was supposed to do. For a while in the lead up to the election, I felt very good about the fact that if that night was the night he decided to run for president, I would also consider that a badge of honor because I was so confident he was going to lose that I wanted credit for tricking him into running for president. But uh, yeah, so, it, you know, it's a good question how I look back on it. I I kind of still feel good about all of it in that I don't, you know, I don't look back and think, Oh God, I wish I'd gone easier on him because I don't think, um, I would have felt good in the moment. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, this wasn't just me randomly picking him out as someone who was uh, deserving of scorn. You know, mm -hmm. this was the, 
it was the the heart of birtherism, and and he certainly deserved everything he got that night, both yeah. from me and and uh, President Obama. But um, you may, of course, I mean, the night is is the night. But is there a part of you? Because um, I've heard other people say this that you know because his candidacy was generally treated like a joke, that um, the lack of seriousness that anybody thought about it is, um, in hindsight, it feels, it, it makes people feel like, oh, maybe I should have taken it a little more seriously. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, think looking back, you know, as the way we started I mean, you're an entertainer, so it's, it's yeah. a little different. But with but. that said, like, you know, I think the closer we got, the more we tried to be serious about exactly who he was. And, you know, in particular... You know, another time that I remember us being very serious about uh, the level of dishonest he is was when he tried to take credit for ending the birtherism. And, you know, that was in the run up to the election. So, you know, and again, when he first um, came down the escalator and announced he was running, we, of course, thought this was going to be a two week story and and treated it uh, uh, with that as our perspective. But I think as it got closer, you know, I I, um, and certainly since. Uh, we've tried to, um, well, at the same time making jokes, point out exactly uh, who this guy is. Um, for somebody in your business, I mean, is he good for business? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that he's good for content in that uh, when this show first started and you weren't having as many insane things coming out of uh, D.C. every day when you were under conventional presidency. But you feel like there's less insane things coming out? <laughs> no, 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 that's right. I mean, there's more, so many things coming out now that you, when it started uh, in 2014 when I was doing the show, you sometimes were thought, how are we going to fill an hour every night? I, you never think that anymore. You never think we're not going to have enough to fill an hour. Um, look, I think good comedians can make good comedy out of most things. Uh, I do... Uh, obviously, hopefully this goes without saying, I look forward to the next chapter of what we talk about every day and uh, I will be relieved um, and ideally it will come sooner than later. Um, but we and everybody on this uh, writing staff is looking forward to what's next. But until we get there, um, we're going to uh, try to do the best we can with what we have. With that being said, though, because there is such a barrage of things every day that you could, I mean, the material is endless. Do you... Is there any fear that you go, you know, like it's it's a saturation, like it's too much Trump like that? Like, how do you balance that? Well, you know, we think that we've presented ourselves to the audience, not as, hey, we're going to, uh, hey, come back tomorrow. We're going to make fun of Donald Trump. We try to frame ourselves as if you come back tomorrow, we will tell you what Donald Trump did since the last time we talked. So it's not necessarily like more jokes about Donald Trump. Now, I appreciate that if you're a fan of Donald Trump, that's how it looks to you. But Everything that we're going to talk about tonight has happened since yesterday. So it's all new material, and it's not our fault that he keeps, in a 24-hour period, giving us enough things outside the norm that we're going to then talk about him. Hmm. Um, so we see there's still uh, about 50, 11 uh, Democratic uh, presidential candidates yeah, yeah, yeah. in the field. Uh, what's, your, what's your take on this? Uh, dem- democratic field so far? Yeah, I, you know, I, it's still early. I've been um, describing it as the beginning of one of those Real Housewives show where it's just them turning around and saying, I'm here to talk about education. <laughs> so <laughs> you don't quite uh, know. You know, I I am perfectly happy for the this weaning uh, process that's taking place right now. And, and I would like, it's a weird time right now in that you know, there's, I think within the Democratic Party, there's such a sense of we have to, we have to do what's 
makes the most sense to stop Donald Trump. And as opposed to thinking, like, who will make the best president? And I think hopefully as we get closer, that will uh, – the latter will elevate what people are deciding. Yeah, I, I actually think it's a really strong field. Um, but I also am concerned with the electability issue. Sure. Um, because it does feel – I've written about this for The Atlantic is that it feels as if the most significant victory that Donald Trump has is – or had over the – Democratic Party was that he kind of stole the sense of idealism from him in the sense that, like, I think people are honestly afraid to vote for who they think is the best candidate as opposed to thinking like, okay, who will the people that supported Donald Trump vote for? Right. That's it feels like that's too much in the front of people's minds. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think anytime you get caught up trying to play political game theory as an American voter, it is put you at a disadvantage because you are then trying to guess what everybody else is going to do. And, you know, we had Michael Moore on the show and he made a really good point, which is the way I think Donald Trump won last time is that his voters were the ones that woke up really excited to go punch that ballot. Like that was a thing for them that had never been there. And, you know, whatever their you know, whatever brought them to that decision, there was an enthusiasm that brought them to the polls. And so his whole thing is, and, and if you want to take back uh, the White House, you need to have a candidate that makes you excited to vote. Um, uh, it makes it an offensive move as opposed to playing defense on Election Day. You think uh, Joe Biden is, is the guy that will get everybody excited? I think as we get closer... That will reveal itself. I will say right now, I do not feel like a bubbling excitement for Joe Biden. Yeah. With that to say, obviously, there's a lot of time to go and uh, and we will see what happens. I And I what I hope is, you know, you're going to have as the, the people as their candidates fall out, they will find excitement for for other candidates. And uh, and that might might take place there, too. So for your um for your business, um, for your show, who would be the best to get elected? <laughs> oh, all right. So, like, if I don't care about uh, if this is totally yeah, a comedy vacuum, this is just, just a comedy, comedy vacuum. This is just a comedy vacuum. I mean, already uh, Joe Biden on a pure <laughs> gaff level. I mean, you know, we, uh, you know, I think that there are things you could write down right now, and if you uh, did not reveal it in the fonts you wrote and said who said this, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, there would be a few that would be coin tosses. And so, um, uh, yes, I think that would be <laughs> that, that yeah, would be the yeah. guy. Because <laughs> I mean, the the rest. Of, well, Bernie though, Bernie yeah. would probably give you some and, material. Uh, well, it's a it's a voice you can do an impression of. Because again, the totally. thing uh, on a pure voice <laughs> level, Bernie is the best uh, to back up Trump. If you were just saying who's the who's the funniest voice president? Yeah, yeah. no, because every time he talks, it's it it kind of makes my ears bleed a little bit because. You know, yeah. it's just a harsh accent. And it's funny to see someone who is that. I mean, irascibility does not. Um, it's amazing how many young people he has won over with <laughs> what strikes you as not. Like if you said, oh, because, again, he is the most popular by far amongst young people voters. And if you said to a network executive, hey, we have this show for 25 year olds and it's about a very old fussy, 
angry Jewish man from Vermont. And the network executives say, get out of here. That's not what kids like. But it turns out. I thought that was Curb Your Enthusiasm. That is, well, I guess. <laughs> That's how it that is. is what that was. Maybe. Okay, maybe it works. kids like Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it, it, is, um, it is startling that he does have that kind of youth support, you know, going for him. I mean, so what? Would you be out of material if it was, if it was Elizabeth Warren? Who's like the, the youngest li- seven-year-old I've ever? Yeah, she is very. She's, <laughs> she's very so vibrant. Uh, she seems very fit. Elizabeth Warren, you know, she seems so on top of it that like you think that if you would make a joke about her, she would not be angry, but she would say, "Can you just? Would you just please explain to me why it is you think that's funny?" I'm willing to listen. <laughs> just, just tell me, like very kindly. She'd be like, "Do you? And are you proud of herself for that joke?" <laughs> And if I told, if we called up your mom right now and told you, told her the joke you told. Well, um, she's, no, she does very much because she's got that teacher vibe. She's got that teacher vibe. Because she used vibe. to be a teacher. She's the kind of teacher you would want to, uh, you would be happy if she told your parents you were a good student. Yeah. Yeah, she's that yeah. kind of teacher. Yeah. So somebody, Firm but fair. Somebody on Twitter said this, um, and I apologize, I can't remember who it was, but it. I thought this was a perfect description of Bernie Sanders, that he looks like the scientist in every disaster movie who told everybody, I told you so, when the whole fucking planet gets destroyed. I think that's a pretty good <laughs> he description. Told, he looks like the bad scientist. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and, you know, to be fair to Bernie, you know, you... Um, when you know when you go back and and watch clips of his, he's been very consistent about his worldview for a very long time. Very very hard to pin the label of flip flopper on Bernie Sanders. Yeah, no, he he is if anything but consistent. Yeah. Um. So, uh, I'm going to take a quick break because uh, when we come back, we got to get into. I've been dying to have this conversation with you in particular. Do we got to talk about Game of Thrones? Oh, let's I, I do mean, it. I know it's it's been a minute since. I can't wait. Dude, like we, we got to break this down <laughs> so it can forever be broke. So uh, more with Steph Myers when we come back. So as I mentioned before the break, I really wanted to have a Game of Thrones conversation with you. One, you watched the finale with Leslie Jones, right? I know. The best. How was that? Because I greatest. followed her on Instagram strictly to get all of her Game of Thrones recaps. Yeah, you know, I overlapped with her very briefly at SNL. I think she was basically there only as a writer for my last maybe eight shows, but I really liked Leslie. And then I, like you, was enamored with the way she talked about the show in real time. And so we came up with that idea of watching Game of Thrones with her, and it was everything we ever could have hoped for. And it was so, but it was genuinely for me, uh, you know, one of the things, and I think one of the great things about a show like Game of Thrones, which not only we're all watching together, you know, as a social media family, but there are a few friends you actually would sit down and watch it with, and there's so few of those shows now. And so it was bittersweet when it was over, not just that the show was over, but that I realized, oh, I, I better hope that we find another show for Leslie and I to watch. It. Yeah, and and you're right. The, those water cooler shows yeah. are very difficult. And for Game of Thrones to become that, uh, and, you know, people usually, like, cuss you out on Twitter if you do you know talk about shows in real time. But that was the one where everybody knew, hey, if you are on this on Sunday, yeah. That show's stupid as well, yeah. like, essentially, right? Right. I'm fine with somebody saying, I had just got around to watching Six Feet Under. God bless. But if somebody a year from now says they just started watching Game of Thrones, I want to say, we, you had a moment. None of us want to talk about it now. 
just, you know, go elsewhere. So I got in super late. Um, but you caught up. You watched. Oh, the, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I didn't start Game of Thrones until January. Me and my fiance, we made that our project. Wow. January so of this really, year. Really? OK, gotcha. so I got in and I was like, I'm good. We're going to make it. Yeah. By the time the last season starts. And we did. All right. Um, we finished uh, season seven uh, a week before. Great, the final season. Timing. So it was fresh in my mind. And I was thinking as I was watching, how were people waiting two years for this? It was, was hard. Man. The long breaks were really hard with that show. Yeah, and I can see why. And then to just remember it all. Yeah. Like it, it was, it was a lot. I, well, how do you, uh, like, so you watch with your fiance. I watch with my wife. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, we're very different as far as like people would show up on screen and my wife would say, who is that? And I would just say, I don't know, but it'll be fine. <laughs> We'll figure it out later. Yeah, they'll they'll do something later that yeah. will inform who they are. Yeah. Um, we Did, also both read the books, and so oh, she would ooh, ask a lot of questions okay. like, "Is the, who's that from the books?" And the amount that I would say, "I don't. It's fine." <laughs> she always asks who it is in every show, right? And I always want to tell her not every character comes in and announces who they are. Hey, by the way, it it's... might be a few. It might be a few lines <laughs> before we know. Did you guys watch like every episode together, or could you watch them apart? Like, what was the we rule? We pretty much watched everything together, with few exceptions. There were, I think. Uh, three or four times where uh, just for the purposes of it being more fun, I would watch the Leslie ones with Leslie just so there were things that would surprise me and you'd catch that in real time. But in general, we watched it together. Okay. So what is your final verdict on uh, the last season of Game of Thrones? I think it's hard to... I want to step back and say the entire thing is a huge triumph. I think the level of difficulty for the last season was by far the highest level of difficulty. And in general, it was going to be the least satisfying because its conclusion was the end of Game of Thrones. You know what I mean? Like you knew. And whereas um, shows like Breaking Bad, the the beginning of the show was you knew... uh, you know, Walt had cancer. It was going to end with him dying. I actually didn't know because I've never seen it. Okay, so watching. that, and again, I don't have any sympathy <laughs> no, for you I'm taking not. this I'm long. Not. You yes. see, I'm not saying spoiler <laughs> yeah, alert. Yeah, I'm right. like, the show's been out too long. But, uh, but you know, the thing about Game of Thrones is it could, of course, keep going. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there was the world was still there. And so, uh, and I was, you're... Uh, the actors want to go on to other things. The creators want to go into things. The writers want to go into things. And so... Uh, uh, I my basic end of it is uh, I just great gratitude uh, to everybody who worked on that show. I feel like that is the political Seth Meyers. You know that last uh, the last put, episode me, was some trash. Let me all right, <laughs> so let me let me reframe it. It was not my favorite season. Okay, yeah. there you go. See, you being <laughs> yeah. too damn nice. I was like that. Yeah. The last I didn't think the the last season itself was a failure, right? Because okay. I know a lot. There was so many disappointing Game of Thrones fans. Yeah, yeah. The petition. I was like, really, you gonna petition them to yeah, do it no, over? Like do that's it just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it was just the final episode in particular, I thought, was the worst of the season. Okay. One, I'm sorry. I Look, as much as Cersei tortured and tormented everybody, I get the symbolism dying in the, the you know, the, yeah. the place you were so desperate to protect and preserve with your brother. I get it. But that was very unsatisfying. Like, I needed her to die a more... I don't know, horrible death. Oh, interesting. So you are you don't actually feel sympathy for her. You oh, wanted her no. to get it worse. No, I wanted it to yeah. be worse. So than... she got covered in a pile of bricks and that wasn't enough for you. <laughs> it felt too light. Okay, it, gotcha. It, it felt too soft. Got it, you know? got, it, got it. You know what I'm saying? Yep, like, yep. like how uh, the big dude, her protector, like how he went out. Yeah. 
that made a lot of sense. You right? like that. Yeah. I like that. He killed by his brother or they killed each other. However yeah. you want to put it. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. Right. You wanted a Ramsey Bolton. You wanted a dog yes. to eat a face. Thank you. There you go. See? And that's very fair. Or, you know, with Aria, when she made uh, uh, Walter Fry eat yeah. his own kids. Eat his own Boom. kids. That's what I'm talking it's about. It's tough, though. It's tough to top yourself when you got a <laughs> dog eating a face, and a guy like, eating his own kids. Yeah, Rex. Yep, yep. Rex. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Now, I think the weird thing was how, and I think this is a credit to the show, you did, you know, uh, you did kind of still like, when Jamie and Sarah say together, you kind of still liked her because you liked Jamie enough. Did we? Did we still like her? Oh, I felt bad. No, she was horrible. She was a bad person. <laughs> she was a terrible she was, person. I don't want to get here. And I don't want to get caught. And I was pissed at Jamie because, you know, he starts this yep. thing with Lady Brienne. And then he leaves her, yeah. but it's Heffa, and it was just like, I was I did super feel upset. bad that was sort of the last we saw Lady Brienne was... Uh, I was who, glad she was alive, personally. I'm glad she was alive. Yeah. I, it was a bummer that she was sort of running out with a you know a blanket around her shoulder yelling yes. for Jamie. She was, you know, too much of a, uh, you know, a knight. She's a knight. She, yeah, she, and of course they made her go out like a sad-ass Mary J. Blige song. That's okay. Yeah. All right? That that's was okay. her, that's her that testimony. Was, I wanted different for her. I yeah. did, too, because yeah. I thought, like, as strong as she was, and now you're going to have for him? Okay, yeah. whatever. Uh, Bron probably pissed me off the most. Brand, yeah, you were Brand, not, not Bron. Yeah. Uh, Brand probably pissed me off the most because if the selling point of why you should lead is he's got a great story, yeah, really. <laughs> Here's my rewrite on that scene because okay. I think I have a good rewrite on that scene. All right, because I don't think any of us agree. Like we don't think he has a good story, right? Mm-hmm. No, um, it, we actually would say like, oh, the Brand scenes were. Uh, never ones that you. No one fast forwarded to the Brand scenes, right? So, but I think. The same case could be made as Bran is a good king by saying Bran has no story that ultimately you want a leader that other people can put a story on him mm. that we everybody else has too much of a story and they've done too much that has alienated too many people. And the reason Bran is fit to lead is that he's such a cipher that the uh, the people of Westeros will project onto him what they want him to be. So I still, I don't mind the choice of Bran. I didn't like the argument. The argument was bad, yeah. right? Because I feel was like, bad. yeah, it's like the, when he went, because uh, uh, that was the thing about Tyrion is I feel like in later season, he got like, I think he drank so much that he got a little, it got a little cloudier with like what used to be real. And I love how he's like fresh out the pen and he's like, he gets to decide who gets to be king. I was like, how, did, how exactly did that happen? <laughs> it did seem, yeah, at some point. Somebody like it was like somebody was saying, uh, Tyrion, this is the last episode, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, with yeah. t- keeping time in mind, who, who, who would you pick? Who would you yeah. pick? Right? And Sansa, it was sort of like, yo, you could have literally done that years ago. Oh, we're just gonna stay independent. What? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that, that, that could have already happened. <laughs> we get it, okay? And, um, but no, it's a, but I, going back to my uh, my my macro political point that you were giving me a hard time on. You still is your still takeaway from Game of Thrones that this is a top fiver for you all time? Oh, definitely. Okay, definitely. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, The Wire is still probably my all time favorite. The Wire is my. But again, would you say The Wire's last season was its worst season? Oh, totally was its worst season. Yeah. Um, and it it definitely felt. But I kind of understood that in the sense, like when you hear David Simon talk about it. Uh, it was so ahead of its time that they kept getting re- the renewals where they didn't know they were yeah. going to have a fifth. Yeah. So I think if he's able, if they say, hey, we'll give you three seasons, like he's able to plot that out yeah, the gate. Yeah. But I think it was just after every season, they didn't know if it was getting renewed or not. Yeah, and I will it, say that's uh, that season has aged very well in that 
the kind of journalism shortcuts that happened there, I feel like it turned out oh, to be. Oh, it was definitely. It was like in the time it seemed a little tonally different, but um, it uh, I, I, I found it uh, more enjoyable. Well, my Jonathan. concern was just that it was so inside newspapers, and I say this as somebody who spent 10 years yeah. in newspapers, that it was um, that I didn't know if everybody else would get it. Right. And so I was like, I don't know if everybody else understands this. So I get it. Um, the Wire is, I do want to, uh, is also my number no, one. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's probably number one for me. Um, so real quick, because I know I got to get you out of here. Um, want to play a little game with okay, you. Okay, great. It's very short and very great. quick. But um, it's a game I'm too lazy to name. Okay, great. So I just call it this or that. Okay, great. I'm not the writing talent that you are when okay. it comes to comedy. You have two choices. Okay. Do know the fate of human existence depends on these choices. Great. I will take it that seriously. Please do. Okay. Okay. Two. Don't try to invent a third. Don't try to ask what if. Mm, Two. All right. So, the office or Parks and Rec? Parks and Rec. What? No, actually, that's closer than people think. I used to (laughs) just mess it with you. (laughs) No, it it is honestly closer than people think. But it is. It's incredibly close. It's incredibly close. So, um, but both I I watch constantly over and over again. Never underestimate uh, how much Seth Meyers likes to see Amy Poehler on television. That is true. I thought you might go with The Office since you were actually in an episode of The Office. I wasn't. Yeah. I was also in an episode of Parks and Rec. I think maybe I was. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. You were. Um, Leno or Letterman? Letterman. Hmm. Uh, Happy Gilmore or Waterboy? Happy Gilmore. Uh, you or your brother Josh when it comes to who's funnier? Um, my brother Josh. You said that very... It broke my heart to it, say it. It did. Sure. <laughs> uh, Stepbrothers or Talladega Nights? Stepbrothers. Um, and finally, mm-hmm. an SNL-related one. Okay. The Chippendales audition with Patrick Swayze and Chris yep. Farley or Dick in a Box? Dick in a box. Very close, though. Mm. Dick in a box. With that said, I do want to add on. I think Mother Lover is a little bit better than Dick in a box. Really? I don't know if you know this story. For Andy Samberg's last year, I did a 64. I did an NCAA bracket style, all the digital shorts. I, I There were like 100, and I picked, in my mind, the top 64. Then I seeded them, and then I handed out brackets to all the SNL staff, and and people would vote, and then I would take it down to 32, and they'd vote again. And then we uh, had a Sweet 16 night where we watched them all, and everybody voted, and Mother Lover won. Mother Lover was voted by the SNL writing staff. It's the best one. There you have it. There you so have it. For, That's some real insight. That is Inside that dope is a, right there. That is good. Yeah. yeah. Wait, just curious. I don't know if you remember. Who were the four number one seeds? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Dick in a Box. Uh... Oh, I believe we gave Lazy Sunday as the first one. Um, that was the number uh, one I'm overall on seat? No, I think we just did one. Okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm on a boat, and I just had sex. Mm. I think those are the number one seats. Oof. Yeah. Very good. They're good ones. They're, yeah. I mean, there's so many hits. Yeah. Uh, too many, because even when I was thinking of, like, the two that, yeah, yeah it was hard. Because I almost, I almost said uh, Chippendales versus uh, Matt Foley. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So tough. Um, I would have taken Matt Foley there. I think Matt Foley. There's a there's more character to Matt Foley. Mm. Uh, I know. I feel like I know that guy. So analytical. Yeah. Well, look, Seth. I know you got to get out of here. Thanks for joining me, and I mean this um, sincerely. I pray we beat the shit out of y'all this weekend because <laughs> I really don't want to hear any more from you, Northwestern. Uh, thank grads. you for your sincerity. Yes, I All appreciate right. it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for Seth, but not it for the podcast. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment, Fuck It, I'm Bothered.
A week or so ago, Colin Kaepernick turned 32 years old. It was in many ways jarring because it was a reminder of just how long Kaepernick has been out of the National Football League, which thus comes with a reminder of why he remains out of the Professional Football League. Uh, the last time we saw Colin Kaepernick on an NFL field, he was 29 years old. And because I'm fucking bothered by the fact that Kaepernick isn't playing professional football, I feel like in honor of his birthday, I should remind people why he's not playing and why he should be playing. There are a lot of made up narratives about Colin Kaepernick. From the beginning, though, Colin Kaepernick explained in detail why he chose not to stand for the national anthem. So for those in the cheap seats who purposely distort and have ignored the meaning behind the protests he initiated, here is Colin Kaepernick explaining in 2016 why he chose to take this stand. There's a lot of things that need to change. Uh, one, one specifically is police brutality. There's people being murdered unjustly and not being held accountable. Cops are getting paid leave for killing people. That's not right. That's not right by anyone's standards. You know, I have great respect for men and women that have fought for this country. I have family, I have friends that have gone and fought for this country. And they fight for freedom. They fight for the people. They fight for liberty and justice for everyone. And that's not happening. I mean, people are dying in vain because this country isn't holding their end of the bargain up as far as, you know, giving freedom and justice and liberty to everybody. It's something that's not happening. And I've seen videos, I've seen cir circumstances where men and women that have been in the military have come back and been treated unjustly by the country they fought for and have been murdered by the country they fought for on our land. That's not right. So for all you fake super patriots who continue to claim Colin Kaepernick is anti-American, you can sit down. He told you from the beginning that it was never about disrespecting the flag or the military. You know who else said that? Nate Boyer, a former Green Beret and a former NFL player who met with Colin Kaepernick and convinced him to take a knee rather than sit because kneeling was a sign of respect for the fallen. Colin Kaepernick isn't in the NFL because NFL owners have decided they would rather end his career than summon a tiny bit of courage to stand up to the president and those people who would rather stand ignorantly on ceremony instead of showing compassion for the black and brown people being crucified by an unjust system. Colin Kaepernick is not in the NFL because he can no longer play. His last season, he threw 16 touchdowns and four interceptions. He was the only bright spot on a team that was otherwise terrible. I'm old enough to remember that Colin Kaepernick was just a slight underthrow away from taking San Francisco to back-to-back -back Super Bowls. I'm also old enough to remember when Kaepernick ran for 181 rushing yards and threw for another 263 yards and two touchdowns against Green Bay in a playoff game, which set the record for rushing yards in a playoff game by a quarterback. If you think Colin Kaepernick isn't as good as Case Keenum, Ryan Tannehill, Mitch Trubisky, Mason Rudolph, all starters, by the way, then I will politely tell you that you are full of shit. His reps have reached out to all 32 NFL teams and gotten no response. By the way, do you know how Colin Kaepernick spent his 32nd birthday, which ironically fell on a NFL Sunday? As much as I wish it were on the playing field, Kaepernick spent his birthday feeding the homeless in Oakland's tent city. He was passing out backpacks filled with snacks, socks, shampoo and other critical resources. That's the guy the NFL has said has no place in the league. Stay unbothered.
Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Thank you.